You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me this morning. I'm glad to be able to be here. Uh, I've been watching online for some time now, and I just also wanted to just say that um, working through the candidacy process with your leadership and staff, you have some extremely gifted and committed people who make this community what it is, and oftentimes I'm sure those folks don't, aren't seen uh, what happens behind the scenes to make what you see up on front happen, and so I just want to say thank you and give you an opportunity to be able to say thank you to them this morning, so from wherever you are. So, um, you know, I, I, one of the things that I've, I've really loved about watching you online and, and sort of your ever-evolving faith and understanding of it is, is the way in which your funny pastor, uh, former pastor, Jonathan, uh, talked about ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, which I think is a really beautiful picture of what is to come, but also is a picture of what always has been, right? The reason he talks about that is because every 500 years, there's been a change within our Christian faith. And every 500 years, kind of a new Baskin Flavors of Christianity comes out. <laughs> And we get to taste another flavor and see another side of our faith that maybe was suppressed or not seen or known or understood. It's just this sort of progressive nature of our Christian faith. Um, and I have been able to taste a lot of flavors of the Christian faith throughout my own journey. Um, and I know a lot of you have as well. I've talked with many of you already this morning and I've heard some of your stories online uh, to know that so many of you come from so many different traditions within our Christian faith. Um, I grew up personally in the Pentecostal charismatic faith tradition. Uh-huh, there we go. That's what we do. We clap, and we hoop, and we holler, and we wave, and we roll, and we sing. All the things. Um, so that's the tradition that I grew up in, and I knew really young that I wanted to be a pastor. So my grandma would take me to this little storefront church. I would drag her up to the front pew, and I wanted to sit as close to the preacher about where you're at every Sunday as much as I could. And then we would go home, and I would break down a little broken-down music stand, and I would, like, preach whatever five-year-old, six-year-old truths... <laughs> Probably a ton of heresy from what I just grabbed from it. And my grandma would always say, you're going to be a preacher one day. You're going to be a preacher. Um, my parents got divorced uh, around that time as well. And eventually we stopped going to church uh, when I was nine. And we picked it all back up again at 12 because I was a menace in school. Uh, my principal told my mom, your son has one more shot and he's going to a disciplinary school. So my mom didn't know what to do with me. So she's like, we're taking you to church and they're going to fix you. So we went to an Assemblies of God church, and, and they made some nice little adjustments to me, um, and some not-so-nice adjustments that I had to go through some therapy for later. Um, and this tradition that I was a part of, it really, it loved me in a way, and it gave me um, the grounding that I needed in a season of my life when, when I didn't know where else to go. Um, and it gave me the sense of forgiveness and healing and strength from the Spirit that I was in desperate need of in that season of my life. And um, eventually, I knew very clearly, like, yes, I, I still want to be a pastor. And so I ended up leading uh, a ministry in my high school, grew to well over 100 students. And so this local American Baptist church in town one day called me up. I was going into my senior year, and they're like, hey, we heard what you're doing, read about you in the newspaper. We would love for you to come have your meetings in the west wing of our building during the summer. 
when school's out. So we started meeting there. Their youth started attending. Eventually that led to a position as a youth director at their job as an, at an American Baptist church. And when I finished from high school then, they said, you need, if you don't want to keep this job, you need to get some letters behind your name. So I went off to Moody Bible Institute, and I would commute between Moody and working at the church. And while I was working uh, at the church and going to Moody, I met a professor. And Dr. Yuan believed that the response to homosexuality was lifelong singleness and celibacy. And so a freshman in college hearing that message, I was like, oh, that's, that sounds amazing to me. Lifelong singleness and celibacy. I know you're like, what? But... <laughs> At the time, it sounded great, uh, and partly because in high school, my mom and I really wrestled with what to do with my sexuality based on the evangelical tradition that we grew up in. We really were taught that, that we were supposed to change that, and so together, um, we went through the process of me going through reparative therapy. So going to college, uh, realizing like, oh, that there's another option. Like, it's not just like be straight or suppress my feelings in that way and lie, but I could actually like admit that I had same-sex attractions and just choose not to act on them. It sounded like saving grace. Um, however, the American Baptist Church that I was working at, the pastor there was like, it's either straight or nothing. Like, this whole single celibate thing is not going to work. This church just isn't going to be able to swallow that. So I left that church as they let me go, went back to my childhood church and worked there for a year as an associate pastor until the superintendent let me go there again because I refused to go through reparative therapy once my sexuality came to light. And then finally, finishing my degree at Moody, I was like, what, what, is, what is happening here? Like, I don't understand how I'm going to be a pastor and yet still hold my sexuality in tension. It seems like the churches aren't uh, accepting what I've held as my new theology. So I, I picked up everything, and I ended up moving to Kentucky, of all places. And I pastored a small, independent Christian church there. And while I was there, uh, I began to realize that they did not really understand my story. Um, for them, being gay was something you do in a season of your life, basically like an alcoholic. And because I had been celibate for five years, I kicked that can, or that man. And <laughs> I was over it. It wasn't going to happen again. And so I was like, no, that is not what's happening here. So I went back in the closet, and just thinking, I'm just going to not be able to talk about this. I'm just going to have to just be a pastor and just forget about this part of my life. You know, it doesn't even matter anyways, is what I told myself. And so that first year, the church tripled, and I was just so busy and consumed with the work of the church, which we do that sometimes, right? We just busy ourselves with work, and so much happens, and that sometimes it feels like a gift, but then we find out it's not, because at the end of that year, I was just so angry with God, and I was filled with so much self-hatred, and so much fear that I might give in to my own desires and temptations, and um, fall in love with a man, or sleep with a man, and all of a sudden lose my career and my family, and go to hell. And so there was a night when I was really wrestling with this and I decided that it was better for me to just get in my car in the parsonage garage and turn it on and go to sleep with the hopes that I'd wake up in heaven one day than to take the chance that maybe I would stumble and lose everything. And that night, Facebook in its infinite wisdom must have been listening through its algorithm <laughs> because it put on my newsfeed gay-affirming churches. And I was like, what is a gay-affirming church? I was 23 at the time and I had never heard of that. And so I clicked the heresy, and I started reading it. And I'm like, there's like whole historic Christian denominations that like allow gay civil unions and gay pastors. And I'm like, how is this a thing? I never even knew this existed. And so I went down this rabbit hole. I just started studying for a whole year. And at the end of that year, I decided that um, I really didn't think anything was wrong with being gay. I was just afraid of the people that did. And so I left that church that I was pastoring and came out. And, and I lost most of the rugs that were underneath me quickly. 
Um, there was just a few friends that stood by me. It took some time to convince certain members of my family to accept me. Every person who ever, ever served as a reference for me, every pastor refused. Um, things fell apart, but yet things felt like they were also coming together at the same time. I remember feeling um, very much like a refugee, like, like the, the place that I had loved and was familiar to me that I knew and that had fostered me and cared for me and I had all these memories for, it was no longer safe. I watched this week on the videos and the news, right, of, of these folks who we, like Matt just talked about, who are coming from Afghanistan and they're, they're leaving their, their country, their land. Do they want to leave? Of course they don't want to leave. But it's not safe. And so they leave everything behind, everything's falling apart, yet it feels like hopefully something new is coming together. And that's how I felt when I left my tradition. And I remember the first gay affirming church I ever walked into uh, to, to embrace as me as, as, a, as a person, my full self, on the outside of the church, it said, messy progressive religion. And I thought, I bet those people would take me. <laughs> you need to put that on the website or something, I think. I think that's worth it. Um, and, I, and so I, I walked into, the, into this church, and they did. They loved me. It was a United Methodist church, and they really embraced me in that space. And I also started attending a UCC church down the street because they had a rainbow flag, and I thought, somewhere I've got to find a place. <laughs> and in all these places, though, it, I felt so out of place because I had never sung hymns before. I didn't know what written liturgy was that everyone's reading together all on the screen. When people were praying and they would do call and response, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, in our gratitude, hear our prayer. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Exactly. When I went there, I'm like, what is this? This is about like a foreign religion to me, but yet it was still my Christian faith. But it was such a different flavor that I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. As I got more accustomed and comfortable in that space, um, the pastor there at both churches asked if I would preach. And in both spaces when I preached, people would come up to me after church and they'd be like, hey, like, you didn't grow up Methodist, did you? You didn't grow up in the UCC, did you? And I'd be like, how, how do you, did I, what? How do you know that? And they're like, well, you preach really long. It wasn't a 12-minute sermon. And you said the Holy Spirit a lot. We don't use that person's name in this place. And also, like, you just had a lot of energy. You didn't read your manuscript. Like, you're clearly not, like, one of us. And I know that they were, they were meaning well, right? It was, it was we, we love you, we accept you, but there was still this part that they wanted me to assimilate, right? There was still this part that, like, yeah, we love your sexuality and you're welcome and you're accepted here, but this is how we do it in this tradition. And I can remember some people would ask, like, you know, why, why don't you read the liturgy sometimes? And I'd say, because I want to know what I'm going to say before I say it. And sometimes when I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, I don't even mean what I just said. So sometimes it, I want to be able to preface it and see it beforehand. I remember, though, there were some pastors in these traditions that loved me and embraced me in a way that helped me feel like I wasn't just a refugee. There were some pastors who said, yeah, there are some people who are going to make those comments to you. There are people who are going to, who are going to expect you to assimilate into our mainline traditions. But I just want to tell you, Josh, you pray the way you want. You preach the way you want. You wear your shorts to church if you want. <laughs> And yeah, you may not know all the authors that we quote and the theologians, but you bring your authors and your theologians to the conversation and we can have conversations with that and we'll be richer because of it. Don't water or filter yourself. Don't conform. You do not have to conform to belong here. I remember the permission to feel that and how for the first time, although I felt pressure from some to assimilate as a spiritual refugee, I also felt permission to be myself and that they would be richer because of it 
And I would be richer because I would adopt some of their traditions too that would make me feel valued. Like I love hymns now. I think the beauty of my own journey was that after, because of those pastors, I ended up going back to seminary. I went to a United Methodist seminary, but it was very ecumenical. People from all different traditions. People brought the best and the worst of their traditions. And I learned even more about all the more flavors there were of our Christian faith. And then after I graduated, about three years ago, I started pastoring a church in Peoria, Illinois, which is about a couple of cities, a couple of hours outside of the city of Chicago. And I really um, embraced this desire to pastor in interdenominational spaces. And so the ch- church I pastor is similar to Forefront in that it's interdenominational and brings all of these different traditions and flavors of the faith. And I know that many of you know that too. Many of you probably in this space feel like spiritual refugees at some point in your life and in your journey. There are probably thin things about Forefront that you're like, that is so foreign. Or, I don't know about that. Or, it makes me uncomfortable. Or, I don't understand that. Or why do you do that? But how beautiful to be in a space where you can bring your full self, ask questions. Today in our passage, Paul does this very same thing when he addresses this issue that's happening in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to some serious differences that are existing between two sets of different Christian believers that are trying to come together, right? Christianity is this conglomerate of both Judaism as well as Gentiles, Gentiles who are made up of of Greeks, and they're made up of uh, Assyrians, and they're made up of all these different groups of people who bring all their own cultures and their own faith traditions, and all of a sudden they're forming into Christianity. The reason Christianity isn't just a sect of Judaism today is because we have people that came from all different traditions, that it became so distinct and so different that it couldn't just be another sect of Judaism. So we have these people coming together, trying to try, trying to put together all these variety of flavors of faith, similar to Austin and I yesterday when we were trying to get some ice cream and figure out what, how many ice, scoops of ice cream we wanted in our shake and what would taste good together and what would be really gross, right? And, and that's exactly what they're doing in this church is they're trying to figure out, well, I don't know, maybe you don't fit or maybe you don't fit or maybe I don't like that. Maybe that's not going to be just right here. And they're, they're sort of pushing and shoving and projecting their expectations onto one another. And in this letter that Paul writes to them, he's calling them to look past their differences and to find their commonality. Some of their differences were things like they had different ideas about what marriage looked like and how many people you should be married to or if you should intermarry or what, who, who's allowed to get married. Sounds like some similar conversations we've had in our own culture still today. They've had, they had arguments around what was a healthy sexual ethic, similar to your series that you recently did. They've talked about, the, the, they, they wrestled with the topic of privilege, the privileged and the powerful, treating the poor poorly, particularly at communion and at meals, not inviting them or waiting for them. They talked about how the poor would often get sued by those who were in privilege and power over issues that really, Paul said, you need to work to reconcile, not use your resources to oppress. It sounds like some things probably haven't changed too much. Um, so I'm grateful that these letters have been passed down to us from generation to generation so that we can look back and see the systemic issue that sometimes we take a few steps forward and we take a few steps back, but we must continue to move forward. These Jewish Christians at this time, it's interesting to think that they also were really uncomfortable with the fact that these, these Greek Christians that they were worshiping with in Corinth, that they were eating food sacrificed to idols, and quite frankly, it made the Jewish community really uncomfortable. They're like, that is something we would never do, and you're going to have me over for dinner, and you're going to cook that, and you want me to eat that? Throughout all the generations, we have not eaten that, and now you want me to change this custom? I don't know about that. They're uncomfortable with this idea. But the real big issue, the real big issue in 1 Corinthians is about tongues. The Jewish community is seeing the pagans speaking in tongues in these worship services, and they're like, what in the world is happening? (laughs) 
growing up Pentecostal, I'm like, cool, 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 love it, love it. Some of you are like, what in the world is happening, right? And so that's exactly what they're experiencing in this space. They're like, why, why are you doing that? And for them, they're like, this is classic pagan stuff. This is classic occultic. Like they're just talking out crazy weird spells. They need to stop that. Clearly that could not be what the Holy Spirit is doing. That needs to just halt. And there's this tension. But I think even more than that, within the Greek community, there also seems to be this tension amongst those Gentiles who are saying, you know, some of us are more spiritual because we speak in tongues and you don't. Or we can speak in tongues, but also I can interpret, so I'm actually more in tune with the Spirit. And so there becomes this sort of special status and spirituality and ranking that's happening, even within the own communities that actually have so much commonality. And I can imagine that those who are in the, who are in the Greek community that are part of the church in Corinth also already have a sour taste in their mouth because there's been so much debate about how their faith isn't valid because they weren't circumcised or they weren't observing the food laws and so their faith was less than or maybe they weren't even really welcomed into the community of faith until they followed Jewish customs and rules. Paul, in this context, writes this to them because as you can see, there's a ton of divisiveness of them learning to live at peace with one another. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to them, urging them to reconsider the way they're treating each other. He says, the human body has many parts, but many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Verse 13, some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, and some of us are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Paul's telling them, he's saying, listen, you can spend as considerable amount of time as you want debating about all your differences because you all come from different faiths, different backgrounds, different cultures, different traditions. You have different passions, different personalities, different abilities. And you could spend all day trying to get everybody to conform to be like you. Or you could take a step back and you could realize that you could have unity without uniformity. Go ahead. Paul is calling them to treat one another as spiritual refugees, not not expecting the others to assimilate, but realizing that each thing they bring from their different traditions makes the body of Christ better. It makes the reflection of who Jesus is and was in the world and the people Jesus chose to interact with shine all the brighter. Jesus never chose to interact with just one people group or even just with those who were unrighteous, but he chose to also choose to be with those who thought they were righteous. Jesus, even those to whom had his head on a cross, still chose to say there's got to be room for you at the table. Paul is calling them to let go of their privilege and their supremacy complexes and embrace the diversity of expressions that are forming in this newly forming faith Christian tradition. And if they could catch this revelation, if they could do this, perhaps we could sit in these chairs today at Forefront Church something beautiful could happen. And they did. One of the values about Forefront that stands out to me that I most identify with and love the most is your value of uncommon kinship. You describe this as a diverse community that is committed to generously caring for one another. No matter who you are or where you are in your journey, our value of uncommon kinship means that unexpected friendships form across various identities. 
And I love the illustrations that you give. This is what I love most about it, of what that looks like for those to form. The, on the website, the, these things are described as like meal trains or grocery drop-offs generously coordinated for a congregant who you may have never met. Or perhaps bonding over coffee with someone who's in a different political party than you. Or maybe a, a small group celebrating someone's coming out when a family chooses to do that, not to do that, and live in denial. Or perhaps maybe even this, finding a way to pray in a group of people where you have different ideas, one who believes in an intervening God and one who doesn't. But at the end of the day, all of these things can happen because you value unity over uniformity. Paul sends this considerable amount of time describing their differences of Jew and Gentile and slave and free and male and female, in essence highlighting their backgrounds and their beliefs and their social status and their gender and their ability. And at at the end of the day, he's trying to help them see one thing, that they are a community that need to find their common unity. That's what community is. Community is a group of people who come together and say, yes, we have all these differences, but where is it that we have some common unity? Paul is saying, your common unity, you all are just made of the dust of the earth, filled with the Spirit of God. That's what you all have in common. Ground yourself in that. Look to that. And when you look at someone other than how you look at yourself, Remember that as you look in the other's eyes, they too are made of the same dust and filled with the same spirit as you. And so at Forefront, that could probably look a lot of different ways. For some, you may be exuberant in your worship. Others, you may just sit and you may just read the words. For some, you may have some preachers who go through the boot camp who get up here and they read their manuscript and some who will just speak without notes or go off script. For some in this church, you may have people who write their prayers and some who can just pray expertaneously. I can't even speak that. (laughs) You'll have some maybe who will choose to read the liturgy and some who will say, I just want to read it first before I speak it out. You'll have some who will pray to change God's heart and some who will pray asking God to change their hearts. You'll have some who will perhaps watch online And maybe they'll watch online for a long season of their life until they are comfortable to walk into this space again. Or for the first time. And you'll have people who will come and worship in person. There will be some who will come to this church who are in a season when they need someone to pour into them because they are empty. And there will be some people who will come and they will have so much they want to pour out. And to meet people where they are is the key to being a church that can find common unity. There will be some who come to this church and they're not sure if they can trust the church again and there will be some who will come to this church and will still be trying to figure out what role the church even has in their lives anymore. And there will be some who will sit and worship like this and they will call in response to the preacher and there will be others who will be like, will you just be quiet so he can keep talking? (laughs) And there will be others who will nudge their partner next to him and be like, I hope you're listening to that, what he just said. (laughs) And there will be others who wish they had a partner to nudge. And the beauty of it is that this is a community of faith where uniformity doesn't have to exist in order to there to be unity. But that's hard work. It takes the sacrifice of privilege and our supremacy complexes and our comfortability and our familiarity that church will not be just exactly the way we always want or thought or are familiar with. But it wasn't for the Corinthian church either. And it never has been for anyone in our faith That's the beauty of our faith. Christianity became a distinct faith for that reason. 
throughout my own faith journey um, and the churches I've served, I've seen this take so many different expressions. Um, I've shared with my congregation recently that I'm, I'm preparing to transition. Um, don't know where that will be or what that space will look like, but preparing them as well. And as I've done that, I've gotten some um, emails this last week from folks in my congregation that I really love and adore, and they've shared some things with me that I hadn't known yet about my experiences with them over the last three years. One of those emails I got this last week was from a couple in the church. When I first started candidating, um, they shared with me that they really weren't sure if they were okay with a gay pastor or if it was okay to be gay. And they were both, uh, one was in his 70s, another one was in her early 80s. And I said, you know, I don't really need you to think that it's okay that I'm gay. I just need you to treat me with humanity and kindness. And I said, um, you're welcome here, no matter where you are in that journey and figuring that out. And they said, we can tell you love Jesus, and so we're going to try this. And this last week, I got an email from them, and they said, out of all of our years in church, we've never felt so loved by a pastor as we felt loved by you. And they said, we still don't know what we think about your sexuality. <laughs> but what we do know is that you love Jesus and you loved us well, and we will miss you so much. I took a deep breath after I read that, and I just remembered and realized that I was so grateful to have been able to serve a congregation where I did not expect everyone to be uniform, where we met people wherever they were on their journey of figuring out whatever topics of faith, whether that made sense to us or was hard or triggering or not, because I think we're richer for it. That family's richer, yeah, but I know I am even more. As my partner Austin and I have walked around New York this week, coming from Chicago, you know, it's easy to see monuments and things that exist here and they just be kind of come normal. We forget their meaning and what they're supposed to call us to and prompt us to. Statue of Liberty, probably, right, is one of the most monumental moments and things that uh, exist here that's a prompt that most people think of when they think of New York. And I think it's interesting about the Statue of Liberty as a reminder to us, as it has been a reminder through the generations to those who come as refugees to this country. The Statue of Liberty was, was brought here by a French abolitionist who, who wanted to gift it to the United States as a symbol, symbol to celebrate the end of slavery in this country and the end of the Civil War. A reminder that, yes, we had a dark past, but it was time to move forward and to live in a world that treated people with equity and equality. And this, yeah, go ahead, please. And so as we consider maybe our own spiritual refugee status of being in this faith community, of coming here and feeling like we're on the outside at times, and maybe even living in the tensions of wanting others to conform to what our traditions are, let us hear the words that were written on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus. She too called the United States to consider how their posture and their heart would be towards refugees as they came to this country. And may we too have this same heart posture as spiritual refugees come to this church and to forefront and to communities of faith like this all around the world. Not like a brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lighting and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, 
With silent lips, she says, give me your tired. Give me your poor. Give me your huddled masses yearning to breathe. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send those, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Forefront, my prayer for you is that wherever you are watching from home or here in person, whether you're watching later in the week or years from now, may you continue to be an intentional place where refugees from all these churches can come and cultivate a just and generous expression of our Christian faith where you can welcome the spiritual refugees who come from all over the world looking for a community of faith that will celebrate them and enhance the body of Christ here at Forefront, not expecting people to assimilate to be acceptable. So Forefront, Forefront, press in. May you be like a beacon of light in this city, proclaiming to this melting pot, give us those who are tired of religion who are tired of regimented gates that keep people out. Give us your poor in spirit who long to find a community of faith where they can bring their full selves again. Hold up your beacon of light forefront. And may you declare, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Bring us your huddled masses yearning to breathe free from the oppressive structures of this society and ones in which the church has often even been explicit in upholding. And let us usher in the next 500 years. Send us those who are experiencing homelessness, those on the margins and those who've drawn the red lines in the margins in this, this community. That they may be erased and made new. That a new city on a hill may rise. Let those come to us, God. Holy Spirit, draw to us the sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. Forefront, may you lift up your lamps of the roulette. May you turn up the light on your TVs or on your phones or on your Zoom or on your Facebook or YouTube so that your screen shines bright, so that your roommates go, what are you watching over there? Let your voice lift high as you sit on your porch or your patio watching from home that people may be drawn to this just and generous and caring expression of faith that we may carry on the legacy that the Apostle Paul called us to and called the Corinthian church to. Come, come, come forefront and be a part of the next 500 years of shining a light that draws every spiritual refugee Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.